Hi, thanks for stopping by. And uh, I'm Josh. This is Dharma Punks New York, our Tuesday evening online class, which we've been doing since, well, the online part since the beginning of the pandemic. Overall, the weekly class has been going on since I started in 2005. So thank you for joining. I am Buddhist pastor who survives entirely by donation. I don't charge anything. So if you'd like to support my work, you can always Venmo Dharma Punks with an XNYC or on the podcast site, there's a button that uh, is a PayPal uh, link. So thanks for that. And what have I got in store for you this evening? Well, actually, we're talking about learned helplessness versus optimism, a sense of agency. How certain experiences in life can leave in their wake a lasting sense of incompetency or failure versus how certain experiences can leave greater sense of optimism, sense of empowerment, and so forth. And we'll look into one of the core reasons that uh, can make the difference between how we regroup and develop resilience after setbacks in life. So I hope this sounds like a topic worth your consideration. Yeah, so let's see where this takes us. Um, a sense of control is important. In uh, the baseline happiness studies of workers, the more choice people experience in work, the happier they tend to be. There was one study where they went from building to building in New York, and they found that very often, along with people who own their own business, people who were uh, plumbers were the happiest people in any given office tower because both individuals had the greatest flexibility in scheduling how they would go about their tasks. And a sense of control or agency um, is constituent of a sense of fulfillment and in terms of the work of um, uh, Jonathan Haidt and others talk about how important it is, uh, how important uh, both control and it goes towards a sense of efficacy and so forth. Uh, when rats are given an opportunity to avoid electric shocks, um, those half are those that group of rats are half as likely to develop tumors than rats and studies that can't avoid that have no sense of control when uh, electric shocks will occur. Uh, one of those terrible experiments, but we'll be hearing a few more actually as we go on. Um, believing we have a power to change life makes life bearable. In the early 1970s, Martin Seligman showed that when human beings or dogs in his experiment, these experiments received unpleasant stimuli that was unavoidable, they subsequently failed in situations where unpleasant stimuli could be avoided, they would give up and stop trying. They would develop what we call learned helplessness. Essentially, essentially, they would become dejected and stop trying. So in the study, uh, the one he did with loud noises with and mild shocks with human beings, and then, then he did it with dogs. He found that if you, for example, put um, dogs in this square area 
where one half would once in a while give these mild shocks. If they simply jumped over a barrier, they wouldn't get shocks. So in the subsequent test, he would have it be a lever that the dogs had to push. And the dogs who in a previous experiment could jump over the barrier and go to an area where there were no shocks, in the next test would try to hit the lever and stop the shocks. But dogs that in the first experiment, no matter what side of the barrier they jumped to, they, they would get shocked. Uh, there was no way to avoid the mild shocks. Those dogs in the subsequent experiment wouldn't even try to push the lever. They just lie down and give up. So the first experience, which indicated that that uh, discomfort was unavoidable led to a pervasive belief that you might as well, they might as well give up and not try. And with human beings, it was very similar with loud, extremely unpleasant sounds. If people were first exposed to a test where they could push a button and the sound would stop, then subsequently in the next test, they would keep looking around for ways, keep trying for ways to stop the extremely loud sounds. But if human beings were in a test, uh, no matter what they did, whether they pushed a button or not, they, the loud sounds would continue, then subsequently they would just give up, just like the dogs and not even try. So what he found was called learned helplessness, that prior learnings lead to passivity, pessimism. We fail to address or even try in new situations. We have a tendency uh, across um, species to give up easily and to conclude that entire areas of endeavors are outside of our sphere of competency, control, agency. And so we are by nature prone to this tendency to conclude far too early that um, endeavors simply are outside of our control. We grow frustrated uh, and we can see uh, versions of this pretty much everywhere, uh, people who are addicts, uh, drug addicts or alcoholics may try once or twice, fail to quit, then become frustrated and conclude that quitting is impossible. Children who fail a math test early on or who struggle in one math class can, for the rest of their life, conclude that math is simply outside of their competency, uh, individuals who repeatedly date emotionally unavailable partners can conclude that all women or men are emotionally unavailable. We just, and that love is impossible to attain. So there seems to be this strong predilection based on early experiences to lead to lasting conclusions about what areas in life any form of happiness or success will be available. In other words, giving up is pervasive. So just as perceived control empowers us to build resilience and um, to obstacles, positive modeling in childhood is extremely important. Uh, the work of Kohut and Albert Bandura and attachment theorists show just that if parents model overcoming adversity, that will breed optimism and resilience in us. But if our parents model also giving up, uh, not embracing or pushing against adversity, uh, then there will be a tendency in the child to grow up to be an adult that will follow suit and give up quickly. I was um, lucky that my parents were 
while there was many problems with my dad, but both of them had a tendency to model in their own way uh, uh, embracing challenges. My mom tried to write uh, several books before she got her novels published. She persisted and maintained effort. Uh, my dad, even though he never really had the kind of exhibits he wanted as an artist, was uh, continued for decades to plow away at it and uh, try to get some traction, despite uh, a general disinterest in his creative endeavors. But in the areas my parents failed to be um, persistent and resilient, I had to myself really, really uh, push myself to be persistent in those endeavors. My mom was never that physically uh, capable, um, largely due to some uh, illnesses that she had. And my dad basically had this attitude, you're either good at it or you're bad at it in certain sports and endeavors. So for a long time, it took me I would have a tendency when it came to any kind of physical um, sports or stuff like that to just uh, give up if I wasn't naturally uh, adept at it. When people grow up in households where there are persistent neglect, uh, school or sibling bullying, poverty, countless learnings that we cannot change our circumstances, then of course they, uh, the hopelessness, the pessimism can become all encompassing. Some of the symptoms of, um, of learned hopelessness is one, when new endeavors that we're not naturally proficient at are avoided. When we have poor distress tolerance and inability to bear the anxiety of, uh, of, um, of the early training and making mistakes. It took me, uh, I learned to skateboard in my 40s and that's a physical activity. And it was so hard for me to put up with the distress tolerance of of failing to do an activity in front of kids who were eight and 10 years old who were effortlessly good at and wailing by me and laughing at my endeavors. So that required so much effort. Um, one of the key symptoms, of course, is we don't ask for help. We'll let the, uh, we'll, when we struggle, we'll just conclude that we're not good enough at it. We'll engage in uh, negative self-talk has been found to be a prime symptom of, of learned hopelessness. And, and of course, settling for less. Uh, it can lead to a spiral of unfulfilled potential, and as I've seen in canceling. So, and making matters harder is that in market-based societies like our late-stage capitalism, competency is often associated with professionalism. In other words, we never see somebody sing on TV or sing in media unless they have a great voice, unless they have a voice that sounds like it, you know, it could be you know, uh, in some theatrical performance or something like that. And so developing skills like singing or dancing or art, unless we show this uh, proficiency right off the bat, we can conclude that, well, there's something that's, um, uh, that I should just give up because I don't sound like or my work isn't as effortlessly beautiful or appealing as people who I see doing it. We have, a, as a culture, a tendency to laugh when people who don't have 
the most tuneful voices sing. Uh, whereas in many other cultures, when you uh, uh, go around to uh, pubs or social places, people of all ages and capabilities sing along to the music, and it's not seen as something that's uh, that's uh, indicative of mental illness if we have the audacity to sing, even though we don't have a great voice. Now, so it turns out, though, that in neuropsychology, that rather than being learned, the brain's default state might actually be to assume helplessness as a starting point, that helplessness isn't even learned, that it's the brain's natural default state to assume that we're not good enough at endeavors, and that, in fact, competency and optimism are what's learned, not the opposite. And Seligman, the man who developed the first tests, actually agreed with this. And by the late 70s, he, in conjunction with other clinical psychologists like uh, John Teasdale and uh, Lynn Abramson and... Uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the other name. They revised the theory and they focused on why some people go on to become optimistic and persistent and don't give up, whereas why do other people give up? And they landed on uh, a fundamental, clear causational difference between optimists and pessimists, between people who keep trying at endeavors versus people who give up. And what it turned out to be was uh, how we explain setbacks, how we attribute, how do we narrate or frame negative events in life the way we interpret, explain, or attribute these events actually makes all the difference in terms of whether we uh, will continue to try, continue to put our efforts in, or whether we'll just give up. So what are the core uh, ways that we hinder ourselves? What are the ways we explain negative experiences in life that cause learned helplessness, pessimism, dejection, and giving up? Well, there's three. There's three ways that we can really um, screw ourselves over. The first is called personalization, or we could put it as simply taking things personally. And this is after we experience a negative event, we blame it on our core self or something about ourself, rather than simply assume that it might have been the conditions or that we simply um, uh, needed more time. But people who tend to take things personally tend to give up much quicker than those who don't. So for example, after a breakup, someone who is uh, optimistic, will have a tendency to say, well, the pairing wasn't right, there are, uh, that it, it was neither of our fault, that it was um, just not the right time. But those who are prone to learned helplessness or pessimism and giving up will, after a breakup, conclude, I must be unlovable. I must be unattractive. I must have done something wrong. I, 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 me, me, me. The second key factor is a sense of permanence to setbacks. So those who, after a negative event, believe that it will um, affect or us forever or stay in place forever, uh, that it cannot be undone or changed. So after a breakup, they might tell themselves, uh, that was my last chance to find love. That, that's it. I might, you know, 
there's no one else out there who will tolerate me. Whereas those who don't believe that experiences are permanent have a tendency to be far more optimistic. After breakups, they might say, well, that was painful. I, that was not what I wanted to happen, but it's not the last experience. It's not, it does, there's always will be more opportunities and so forth. So they don't view anything any experience, especially negative experiences, as permanent and lasting. And finally, pervasiveness. So a sense that one event can determine everything else in life, so that we might as well, that this one negative event will affect everything else in my life. So for example, after someone loses a job, people will see me as a failure, or uh, it'll affect all my other endeavors, my ability to find joy in the world because I've lost this job. People who are optimistic, on the other hand, will say, well, it's only a job, but everything else in my life is going okay and won't be affected by this. So I'll just have to focus my efforts in this area. But People who are prone to uh, giving up always tend to view negative events, not just in terms of themselves, but in terms of implicating every other area in their life. So again, the three keys to making the difference between whether we uh, persist in our endeavors, whether we are optimistic, whether we will continue to thrive and pursue, are not taking things personally, not attributing them to ourselves, not uh, believing that negative events are permanent, that there will be more opportunities to try our hand at things, and that a negative event doesn't affect everything else in our life. Studies of students who failed midterms showed conclusively that those who blame themselves would go on to fail the course, whereas those who would blame anything else but themselves would go on very often to pass the course. So after failing uh, test, they might say, oh, I should have studied more, or the professor was unclear, or the book was dense, but they didn't say, I'm bad at this subject. Okay? So the moment we take anything personally, as a result, we are far more likely than to go on to uh, give up an endeavor. We're far more likely to uh, uh, become frustrated, dejected, and not persist in our efforts. We see this in the wonderfully uh, easy to grasp and in influential work of the great cognitive psychologist Albert Ellis, who had what was called the ABC model and it's very simple, similar to the Buddha's teachings, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, in Albert Ellis's ABC model, he showed how the way we interpret experience is fundamental to how much suffering we experience in life. So it goes like this. The ABC model, A is the activating event. So the classic example is, we're walking down the street, we see a friend, we wave at them, and they remain stone-faced and don't wave back. B is the way we interpret or our beliefs about that experience. And so some people, their belief would be, what's the matter with me? Why did that person not wave? Does that person not like me anymore? And then C, the outcome would be they'd suffer. But Ellis said, suppose B, the way they interpreted that experience was different. Suppose they interpreted it as, um, they my friend must not have seen me when I waved, or maybe the sun was in their eyes, or maybe they were lost 
in thought and just completely not aware of their surroundings. In that case, the person would not suffer, see the, the conclusion would not be as bad as the person who took it personally, who believed that their friend was purposely not waving back. So what Ellis showed was that in life, it's not really the activating events that are often as important as the way we interpret those events. B, our beliefs, our interpretations make all the difference in how we experience things. And, and our suffering, the Buddha taught the exact same. In the four foundations, I mean, the four, sorry, the four noble truths, um, A, in life bad things happen. There's old age, sickness, death, separation from things and people we love uh, and so forth. There's painful events, there's being stuck with people we don't like and so forth. But the Buddha said the real fundamental cause of suffering is not are not those events, it's the way we respond, interpret and react that cause suffering, the real, real suffering of like the dukkha viparinama and the dukkha sankara. So again, we have this explanation that it's not really the setbacks that are as important as how we interpret the setbacks that make all the difference. In the Dharma, one of the five core constituents of life, the five khandhas, is sana or interpretations or how we perceive and explain and uh, uh, negative experiences in life or positive, how we attribute them. And the Buddha says in those that those with wisdom see that all things are impermanent, or in his words, see change in all things that are changing, and also see that there is no core lasting self to be responsible for events. Not self is a core concept in Buddhism. We understand that uh, in anatta or, or not self, that there's no lasting identity. We're constantly in a state of flux. We're constantly changing due to the situations and conditions and the environments that we're in. Sometimes we're serious. Sometimes we're laughing and goofy or friendly. Sometimes are are joking and it really depends on the context that and other factors that determine who we are so there's no core self to be responsible when bad things happen anyway so we shouldn't take things personally in the famous teaching to the buddha's son rahula he has caught his son rahula in basically a lie it's pretty clear from the text. And in the Rahula Sutta, the Buddha is very clear to say when bad things happen, though, don't blame it on your core identity or who you are. Don't take it personally. Just see it as an action you don't want to repeat. Talk about it and then keep on living and keep trying. So he says, to his son, if after an action that seems to have been unskillful in that it led to harm to yourself or to others, simply discuss it with someone who's wise, a spiritual friend, acknowledge it, try not to do it again in the future, and then continue with your efforts. So in summary, um, it seems that early events in life, especially early childhood events, have a tendency to leave lasting perceptions, especially perceptions that can make a huge difference upon how we respond to challenges in our life. And perhaps the most 
important or influential of these early learnings is that we'll have a tendency after setbacks to either blame it on ourselves, to believe that the experience is lasting and that it will pervade in all of our endeavors, or it will, will explain and interpret negative events in terms of it's not indicative of who I am, it's just an event, it's not lasting, it won't affect the entirety of my life, it's not a global lasting experience. And so it's our, what's most important is not to focus on the failures themselves, but to focus on how we interpret these experiences in life, to look and really, as the Buddha says in the Sana Suttas, to see in every event how it's not permanent, it's not going to change everything in my life, and it's not about me. So, hope that was interesting. That's uh, my talk. And now we're going to do a meditation. And in the meditation, we're first going to relax and rest. And then we're going to try at the end to practice the theme that was in tonight's talk. So find a really comfortable seated position. I'm going to just sit here and close my eyes. I'm going to roll my shoulders and just pull uh, my arms back, open up my chest, and then just allow my arms to fall in a comfortable position. And I'm going to just... Uh, Try to keep a nice alignment going. But if you'd like, you can, of course, lean back. You can lie on the ground or on a couch. Don't feel that you have to sit in an upright position if that's not something that is presently at this moment. What you prefer Right now, we're just focusing on developing ease while staying present and alert. Now, very often when people stop focusing on the world around them, the first thing that happens is our mind becomes caught up in thoughts about events of the day or unresolved issues in our life or concerns about the future or worries about uh, interpersonal relationships. <clears throat> in other words, we get lost in thought. And uh, over the course of life, this tendency to just the moment we begin to detach from the world around us and we have an opportunity to focus on our internal experience and rest and relax instead we jump to any thought or memory or worry or concern or idea that comes to mind and we simply stroll off with that and abandon the opportunity to really reconnect with our internal sensations, the landscape of our internal experience, our, how we feel, how our body is at this moment paying attention to just the feelings, emotions, sensations that really are just as important as any thought or any, any perception of the world 
around us, our internal experience is how we have any sense of what we need what our true feelings and emotions are at any moment. They express all the history of life that are expressed somatically They provide us with the gut feelings that determine our choices. And in focusing our attention on our internal sensations, how we feel right now, breathing, how our body feels, is our stomach or abdomens tight or relaxed? Is our breath cut off or complete? Do the muscles in our face relax or are they held tight? All of these are messages or signals seeking our attention, influencing all of our actions and behaviors. In returning to the body, we can take care of it, honor it, appreciate it. And it's the most efficient way to find peace in any moment. All the places and people and activities we enjoy, we enjoy because our bodies relax and feel comfortable when we're in those situations. And so in most situations in life, if we focus on our internal experience, we can cultivate ease, comfort, patience, simply by bringing our attention to areas we can soothe. So starting from the top of the head, just breathing into the forehead and with the in-breath becoming aware of the sensations there and then with the out-breath, Imagine that a smooth exhalation, you can use it to ease any tightness there. And then breathing into the eyes. And as you breathe out, relax all of the micro muscles around the eyes till they just feel like they're floating in two warm pools water and the eyes settle behind the eyelids. Breathing into the nose or mouth. As we breathe out, relaxing, allowing the mouth to settle into a really comfortable expression. Imagine breathing directly into the front of the neck. And as we breathe out, releasing any tightness there. And so on, breathing into 
the chest, the top of the chest and feeling it light up with energy as you breathe in and as you breathe out, releasing any clenching or contraction there, just opening and softening and continuing down the body. Just use the breath to bring awareness on the inhalation and release and ease on exhalation. So if you're breathing into the left palm, with the in-breath, imagine all the sensations of the left palm of the left hand light up with awareness, becoming aware of every sensation in the palm of your left hand. And then as you breathe out, just imagine, or just allow the palm to collapse into the most comfortable position. Using the breath to explore self-care.
So when the mind wanders, it's important, especially given tonight's theme, to not attribute it to something personal, like, oh, I'm I'm not good at this meditation stuff. I'll never be able to sit and simply enjoy being present. Nor do we take it as lasting. It's not, uh, I'll not always struggle if I'm struggling to just relax and stay present. We know that certain conditions, certain times it's more difficult than others, that it will sometimes be very easy to relax and settle and sometimes not. So put these themes or reflections or interpretations immediately to use in our practice. And when we do drift away, just use that as an opportunity for to bring more ease and comfort into our practice when we find we've got caught up in a thought, just promise that thought will return to it once the practice is over. And then just reward yourself for that waking up from a preoccupation, from a thought. Reward yourself with a really nice breath, with uh, that brings ease and comfort, smile, adjust your body to feel even more comfortable. So bring to mind, if you like, some experience, some disappointing event or setback or uh, 
situation that you associate with uh, a sense of disappointment or failure or something that an area in life that we just feel like giving up. Just hold a image or a simple phrase that will stand in as a marker or symbol for that experience, that setback, that frustration that comes to mind. And once you have it, I'd invite you to first reflect or find a way to interpret that event in a way that's not personal, not about you, not about your identity. Find any other attribution to why it occurred even though it might seem to be about you, reflect on how this experience happens to others or that what occurred was not a matter of your personality, but simply maybe we didn't have enough time. The situation was difficult. There was a lot of stress present that wouldn't always be there. even if it seems like it was our fault, to reflect that we are changing. So even if we acted rashly or with poor judgment, it doesn't mean we always have those characteristics. So it's not about us, it's just about a temporary state of mind we were in not indicative of who we are as human beings or our core. As the Buddha said, actively perceive that which is not personal, not self in the experience. And uh, secondly, perceive how this experience is not forever. Not always the case. not permanent. That there are always more opportunities. Maybe not in the exact same endeavor, but there are opportunities nonetheless. Opportunities for growth, love, connection. Work. 
friendships, And finally, bring to mind how this setback or unpleasant event, it doesn't affect the entirety of our life. Locating positive experiences, people, places, endeavors that are still available and not affected by this disappointment. So at this time, just allow yourself to become more and more aware of the sensations, the sounds from the world around you, allowing yourself to open your eyes if they were closed and just reconnecting with all the sights around you. And then whenever uh, it feels right, 